Welcome to the Designing Music Now podcast, a podcast dedicated to the craft of creating music for video games and interactive media. I'm your host, Dale Crowley. And I'm Chanel Summers. This podcast is available at Designing Music Now. It's also available at SoundCloud, Stitcher, and coming soon to iTunes. Welcome to the Designing Music Now podcast, episode two. I'm Dale Crowley. And I'm Chanel Summers. And today we are deeply honored to have Dr. Karen Collins as our guest. Karen is the Canada Research Chair in Interactive Audio at the University of Waterloo and an internationally recognized expert on game audio. She received her PhD in music from the University of Liverpool. She has 15 years of experience in researching and teaching about game sound and has published four books on the topic, including Game Sound, Playing with Sound, From Pac-Man to Pop Music, and The Oxford Handbook of Interactive Audio, as well as numerous research papers on a wide variety of topics such as interactive audio and how sound is used in slot machines to manipulate players. She is the director and producer of Beep, a documentary history of game sound, and also the author of a new book based on the interviews in that documentary called The Beep Book, which is running a Kickstarter campaign right now for the month of October through November 9th, and this may be the only opportunity you have to get a print copy of the book. So welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here, and uh, it's really exciting to see this new enterprise being launched. Yes, Chanel and I are very excited to be working on Designing Music Now, and we are really excited to have you part of our second podcast in the very early stages of development of our website and our community here at Designing Music Now. So Karen, how did you get started in music and what are some of your earliest memories? Uh, I would have to go way back. I can't remember how or when I actually got started, but I've always been absolutely obsessed with music like since I was basically a toddler. Um, I started playing guitar when I was five and then played viola in school, um, took some piano in school as well. Um, then eventually did my PhD in music. Um, although there was a big hiatus in there when I did a degree in art instead of music, because at the time it wasn't really possible to study anything other than classical music and I wasn't really interested in classical music. And so I just chose to study art because, hey, I could just listen to music while I make <laughs> art. <laughs> but really, I mean, you know, I've, I've been obsessed with sound and music since I can remember, basically. Well, same. It goes back to, to being a toddler. I mean, we had one of the Sears Pong clones and, and, and then an Atari 2600. And I can remember imitating the sounds, you know, with my friends uh, outside outside the game and during the game as well. You know, just kind of playing with sound as we were playing the game. Oh, that's awesome. I kind of remember a, a question similar to that um, when we sat down for the uh, for the beep interview. <laughs> and I remember your answer because, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's talking about Space Invaders. And, and that was a big game, too. I mean, I remember those days of those early arcades. Um, and arcades were kind of a scary place at the time for, for a child, especially a girl. But we had... Galaga and Centipede in our local grocery store. And I remember going grocery shopping with my mom and just being like mesmerized by these machines and stopping every time and forcing her to, to give me a quarter. And of course it would last like 10 seconds, but you know, I would have to wait for like the next week when we went grocery shopping to try again. But um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a different experience. I think playing games back in those days because you know, it, it had this kind of aura to it, that this kind of mystique that you had to go into this other place other than your home to play these things. And, you know, usually there would be some teenage boy who he seemed really old to a small <laughs> kid at the time, you know, this big, scary, almost adult kind of figure there. And you would have to politely wait. Um, of course, now you've got your games right at your fingertips. It's a completely different experience. I know kids have it so good these days. <laughs> these these kids with blocks <laughs> little squares that's all we had little squares so so karen maybe let's talk um a little bit about the, the tremendous books you've written you know um maybe you can kind of talk about um some of those books you know which which one you started with first what kind of um 
you know, what was the idea for, for your first book? Where did that come from? Um, and then maybe just take us through a, sort of a history um, of, of these books and, and what created the ideas for those various books that you, you wrote. Being obsessed with sound my whole life, um, I eventually discovered that what I liked about music was really um, odd sounds being used in music, non-musical sounds, you know, weird noises, basically, which I'm sure came from playing those old video games as a child. Um, and I was obsessed with electronic music you know, throughout most of my teens and 20s as well. Um, and so I wrote a PhD about industrial music and its relationship to science fiction film, particularly dystopia, and the use of these non-musical sounds um, and how that got brought into this, this industrial music genre. And halfway through my PhD, I was trying to figure out why there's all these minor seconds in industrial music. You know, there's this kind of a lot, a lot of alien, a lot of Phrygian mode um, in industrial music. And I was looking at the Phrygian stuff and I'm like, why, you know, where does this come from? You know, this minor second stuff. And I actually got used in metal a lot in the 80s as well. But I wanted to know why it suddenly got brought in. And, and, and then I was remembering these old Atari games. And I'm like, I'm sure there's something there. And... I just didn't have time to get into it because, you know, you've, you've only got so much time to write a PhD, but I'm, I'm like, you know what, somebody should write about video game music. And then I was like, hey, wait a minute, I can write about video game music. <laughs> but I was too busy with my dissertation. So literally the day I handed in my dissertation, I started writing about video game music and started looking into it. This was back in 2002. Um, and so I explored that. I spent about five years just trying to put together a history of video game music because at that time nobody had done it and there was not a lot of information on the web. And so it was a lot of archival research, a lot of you know digging into um, patent documents and schematics and, and trying to figure out you know what the hell it all meant because I didn't know a lot of this stuff myself and just kind of trying to piece it together and then playing an awful lot of games. Um, and so the first book was Game Sound and that took me about five years to do all of that work. And approximately as I was finishing Game Sound, which was 2006, I think when I sent it off to the publishers, then I was also recruiting other people to start writing about game music. And so I put those articles together into a book called From Pac-Man to Pop Music, which was a series of articles um, written by some academics, some people in the industry. Um, for instance, Anders Carlson from GoTo80, chiptune musician. I, I can't remember. I think... Damien Kaspar maybe wrote a chapter in that one. It's, it's, this is, came out in 2008, so I'm having to, <laughs> to dig, dig back. Um, Peter Drescher, I think, wrote a chapter as well. So a lot of people that were kind of involved in the industry, um, as well as academics, and just trying to slowly start to piece together what this game music thing was. And then I got a job um, in the meantime, and the academic world, as you know, you go from assistant professor and hopefully eventually get promoted to associate professor, and then you get tenure. Only when I initially approached my department chair about, um, about getting tenure, he looked at my books and said, well, this isn't scholarly enough. And um, thank God there's enough people out there that would punch him in the face for saying that today. <laughs> but uh, um, at the time I'm like, okay, well, F you, I'll go write a scholarly book. And so then I wrote Playing With Sound, which was a lot more sort of theoretical based on sort of um, a lot of the film music theory, film sound theory that ha had been out there and sort of trying to apply some of it to games and using theories from psychology and stuff as well. So uh, then I, so that was basically, here's my theory book, you know, take it and get lost. And so then I got tenure. <laughs> And, and then Oxford approached me about writing or, or getting together another um, collection of essays, which was the Oxford Handbook of Interactive Audio. And so that was a huge undertaking. I think there's like 30-something or 40-something chapters in that. Yeah, it's huge. So that, that, that was a, a, lot of, um, a lot of work getting those together. But again, it's this combination of uh, industry people, academics, people from all over the place, just kind of getting all kinds of ideas and throwing them together in this big book. So that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is really fascinating. So it seems like you started off with a deep understanding of the history 
of game audio. And then you moved more into wanting to understand the people behind the game audio. So the composers, audio directors, sound designers, and so on. That's right. I mean, I was always interested in the people involved. Um, but initially, when I started writing, I didn't really have access to those people. And I started going to GDC in 2006. So it was just as I was finishing game sound. Um, and now that I have a lot more access to these people after getting to know them for 10 years, um, yeah, I really felt an, a need to let them speak about their own experiences of, of what this was all about and getting it sort of from the horse's mouth. Um, the other sort of vein in that was coming from uh, Brad Fuller, who was head of Atari coin-op division audio for, I think, 14 years or so. And he is part of the Interactive Audio Special Interest Group, or IASIG. And years ago, we sort of said, this was about maybe 2008, 2009, we said we should start getting together an audio game audio archival project. That We should start archiving this stuff um, before it's too late, before people you know, forget or die or, you know, just disappear off the face of the planet that we should try and, and gather this stuff. So that was in my head as well. It's kind of percolating for years as far as, um, you know, we really need a kind of project that begins to gather this stuff. Because if you look back at, at film sound history or film music history, it's just all gone. It's it's not there. We don't have, you know, yeah, I think some, something like 90% of silent films have been lost. Um, we don't have a huge amount of information about music or sound effects and how they were made in those days. And certainly we don't have anybody actually talking about their own experience of making music or sound for those early films. So I think it's really important to, uh, to do this now. Absolutely. And not only are you blazing a new trail here, you're also talking to everyone in the industry. So the hardware manufacturers, the sound designers, composers, audio directors, really just about everyone on three different continents, Japan, Europe, and North America. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I was saying, I went to uh, to Game Music Connect a couple of weeks ago, and it, it, the kind of enormity of it, I mean, it was the first time I'd taken a week that I actually stepped away from the project, and the enormity of it hit me. And I was remembering, if you've ever seen, there's an image online, you'll have to dig it out, of a boa constrictor that swallows an alligator, and it's splitting down the side because this al this alligator is just too big. And I kind of feel like that, where I've kind of like choked this thing halfway down, and it's like it's going to hurt to bring it out as much as it is just to keep swallowing. So, you know, at, at this point, yeah, I I'm that boa constrictor that's kind of splitting down the sides going, what have I done? <laughs> One of your lines of research has been about slot machines and how the audio and music that the slot machines play influences and perhaps even manipulates and persuades players to keep playing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How it impacts us it, um, emotionally, psychologically. This is what you mean? Yes, all of it. Yes. <laughs> well, you guys have some big questions. <laughs> this is this is serious business here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how sound can be used to sort of uh, manipulate us emotionally or psychologically. Um, so one of my research projects in the past has been looking at specifically at slot machines yes. and how sound... Um, which is used in a, in a very similar way to, to a lot of games, but basically sound and slot machines um, makes you feel like you're winning when you're not. Um, you remember the wins more than you win, You remember the losses because of the sound that's being played. Um, that sense of, of sound that continues outside the game, after the game, you know, when you sort of hear it looping in your head, and it kind of brings about a kind of... Um, no recollection of the winning in particular. And so you forget about all of the, the losses that you've had, um, but also the sort of immediate impact in terms of your psychophysiological response. So for instance, we were hooking up people to uh, galvanic skin response, which measures how um, excited your, your body is, basically, so you can't just say, well, yeah, that sounds good, or I remember that sound, but we're actually measuring you know, psychophysiologically um, using skin response using EEGs and so on, and looking at how sound basically um, manipulates us into keep, keep playing and, and how it tricks us into 
behaving in a particular way. And I see a lot of parallels between that and casual games in particular, where there's a lot of sonic rewards. And mm -hmm. you're, constantly, you're constantly feeling like, oh, I'm winning, I'm doing so good. It's like this constant pat on the back that, um, I mean, you're, you're, until recently, you weren't actually losing money on these things. But now I think that there's a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of in-app purchasing going on that you can actually consider it a kind of form of gambling in the sense that you can kind of become addicted to these games and you're spending a lot more money than you thought you would be. That would be me. <laughs> well, well, me too. I mean, I think we all do. And I think that the sound is a part of that because we like to feel good. Yeah. And the sound is telling us to feel good all the time. So I think that's one area where it's manipulating us. Now, you mentioned VR. And I don't know a whole lot about what's going on in VR, but there's some really interesting things that can be done as far as um, binaural sound in particular, where you're definitely getting um, a lot more realistic uh, locational information about sound effects. And there's things that you can do psychologically with that to experiment, mm -hmm. for instance... Um, you have what's called in-head localization where sounds appear to come from inside your head because you're wearing headphones versus sounds that are, appear to come outside your head. And you can do some weird psychological things with that by you know, making people sort of feel like somebody's whispering inside their head versus yeah. sounds coming from outside. So I think there's a lot that's going to be done there that, uh, that they'll be playing with, particularly because now they have all of these opportunities with, with headphone use. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that that's the thing about sound. You, you don't always have to rely on tech to do interesting things. You could be so creative and yeah, using um, uh, the principles of psychology and perception, working with aural illusions and gestalt psychology to, you know, sort of like, wait, is the sound coming from there? Is it coming from that object? No, it really isn't, you know, but you're perceiving that it is. And so it's, I love doing those sort of cool little sound tricks. Um, and, and not having to always rely on a lot of very expensive tech. Um, I, I just also wanted to say the slot machine research, again, tremendous, tremendous research. Uh, I actually use, you know, the, the work and your, the papers you've written um, on that in my class at USC. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the idea that uh, the, the music and the sounds or slot machines tend to be written um, in C major? Yeah, I'm not sure that they all are, um, but that certainly is, they're certainly always positive. They're always in a major key or almost always in a major key. Um, but I think that the companies are kind of aware of that. And so to stand out, I mean, you, you have, you know, it's like walking to an, in, into an arcade. It's this absolute oral overload mm -hmm. um and so to stand out from that you would want to do something a little bit differently i mean if you're in c sharp versus c well you know maybe you're going to attract somebody over to your, your machine so <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's true that they are actually all in c major um, but perhaps for a time they were definitely using a lot of the same chords the same sort of mm -hmm. sounds um, i don't think c major would be any more psychologically pleasing than A major. So I, I don't know why it would be sort of C major in particular that gets used. Because um, G major is good too. I know, <laughs> I know. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of good majors. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and even, you know, this idea that, that major is always positive and minor is always sad just doesn't hold up when you look at a lot of music. Like if you look at, um, Sea shanties, like uh, what shall we do with a drunken sailor? I mean, that's that's minor, <laughs> that's minor key. Yeah, and yet sure. it's a really happy, jaunty song. So I'm not convinced of this whole major equals happy, minor equals sad sort of mythology that we have here in the West. I totally agree. It probably has more to do with consonance and yes. dissonance, and probably there's not much use of the Phrygian mode in slot machine music. Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. So what are your responsibilities as the Canada Research Chair in Interactive Audio at the Games Institute, University of Waterloo? Well, essentially what that means is that I don't do a whole lot of teaching, that um, I do mostly research, and that research is defined by me. Um, other than the fact that I have to annually account for what I've done with my time to the Canada Research Chairs Board, so I can't just you know, do nothing. I have to keep producing research papers and so on, but it basically means 
I get to do what I want with my days and it's pretty great gig. <laughs> um, it ends in a year and a half, unfortunately, and then I just become a regular faculty member. But it, it's given me the opportunity to do things like Beep, um, to use my time to, uh, to actually you know, explore ideas that maybe I wouldn't have enough time for if I was a regular faculty member. Well, it's a blessing to us all that you have some time to be able to pour all of that attention and focus into these interviews into getting them out there, not only as a video, but also as a book. And uh, it's really fascinating from a research perspective as well. So speaking of Beep, let's roll the clock back. Uh, August uh, 2014, you had a very successful Kickstarter campaign. So what, in your experience, are the elements of a successful Kickstarter (laughs) campaign? Well, ironically, since we're in the middle of our second Kickstarter, I thought I knew I thought I knew everything after the first one, um, <laughs> and it turns out I don't because we're nowhere near as successful. Although this time, I have to admit that um, I set a really soft goal, and I haven't been pushing myself out there the way that I was with the first one because I just don't have the energy. I just have. You know, I've got so much work on my plate that I cannot put the kind of time in last time. Um, but really, it, it's a lot of planning. It's an awful lot of work to run a successful campaign. A lot of people think you can just put up a, you know, your page and people will come to you. But it, it really is going out there and shaking all of the trees until a leaf falls out of every single tree, basically. Um, it's quite an emotional experience because it's quite difficult to ask people people for money at least I find it quite difficult you know to ask friends for money and so on Um, and you can keep tweeting them and saying you know I know you saw my Facebook page because you liked it so why aren't you giving me your money you know it's great it's quite it's quite emotional and it's quite difficult Um, it's an awful lot of work it's a lot of trying to get press involved trying to um you know, get everybody that you know to tell everybody that they know. And I think it's becoming even more difficult. Like, I think the difficulties that we're having this year are not just because of my lack of energy and constantly putting myself out there, but also that people are kind of tired, I think. They're getting a little bit fatigued by constantly having all of their friends have Kickstarters. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like... Oh, yeah, like every time sure. I look at my Twitter feed, there's for 30 sure. new Kickstarters that I, I should be contributing to. And it's just like, I, I just can't. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally, I totally understand that. So, Karen, you know, over a year in now, what what have you learned about documentary filmmaking that really excites you the most? <laughs> it's really hard to answer that because i'm so sort of buried in this mountain of work right now that it's really hard to think about what's fun and exciting about it it must be very overwhelming like the boa constrictor who swallowed the alligator Exactly. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's been an incredible learning experience. You know, we traveled all over the world. We got to talk to all kinds of exciting people. Um, and that was really, you know, I can't express how incredible the, the year was. Now that we're back home and, and editing, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's exciting, but it's been a really fascinating experience to try and take 100 hours of footage and cut it down to two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, would you say that that was probably your biggest challenge? Definitely. Um, and, and even just even while we were filming, just knowing when to stop and say, no, like we, you know, I still have people contacting me saying, you know, I worked on these games, I worked on this game, so you could come interview me. And it's like, those are great games. I love that music. I can't do any more interviews. Um, you know, I, I, in a way, I wish I could keep going and going and going, uh, but there's just no more time or money there. Um, but yeah, it's been really difficult to sort of to know what to, how to distill all of this stuff down to something that perhaps people who don't know a whole lot about game music are actually going to want to watch this and and learn a little bit about while keeping people who do know about game music still interested in in what it's all about as well. So it's, um, 
It's been a really great experience, but very difficult. Yeah, editing is always such a challenge, you know? It's sort of like, it's your baby. It's like, but that's great, and that's great, and I want to keep that, and I want to keep that, and that's that's always, to me, such a difficult uh, thing to do um, because it just always seems so good. And you're right, how do you distill it down to, to tell that really, you know, cohesive and amazing story about gay music? Especially when people have given their time to us. You know, if it was just me rambling on for 100 hours, I could cut that down to two hours just fine. Um, but it, when it's people that I have a lot of respect for and I really care about their music and I care about them as people and, you know, having to make that cut where it's just like, uh, you know, what you said is great. You just took a little bit too long to say it. And I can't keep that in for that reason. That's really, really hard to do. So you interviewed over 100 people from every discipline of game audio, sound design, VO and composition. How did you organize the presentation? Was it historical or was it by genre? Uh, it's primarily historical based up to after the invention of the, the sort of CD-ROM and the introduction at that point of being able to you know, record anything and put voice and all kinds of other things in there. And from there, it's, it's kind of becoming more of a, a genre-based. Um, I've divided it into basically voice music and sound design um, and separated those three things out and just looked at what are the sort of the key aspects of those those three things and what do they bring to games. So you interviewed composers from all over the world, from many different genres, young and old. Were there any commonalities or common threads amongst all of these composers from various walks of life? Hmm. I'm not sure that there are really a lot of common threads. Um, everybody sort of tends to take a different approach. People have different philosophies. I think what all of the composers would agree with is that they don't always get to do what they want, that the game has to come first. So, you know, it doesn't matter what style of music you would really like to do, um, but you're looking at the game and saying, this is what the game needs. And sometimes that means the game needs some fairly sort of ambient, not very exciting, you know, music, whereas the composer would like to go off and, you know, show off their chops and they don't get that opportunity. Um, but I think that's maybe the most common thread. It's just that need for serving the needs of the game as number one. Um, as far as approach, you know, people had, had different approaches as far as what they do. Uh, as far as, you know, the wide variety in personalities, um, wide variety in terms of the other things that they do, whether they like to do implementation or whether they stay away from implementation, um, it was really all over the map. So I wouldn't say that there are a whole lot of commonalities there. More and more games are embracing adaptive music, and there's some great middleware to help out with that. Things like Elias and, of course, FMOD and WISE. Did you find that the composers you spoke with in general are on board with adaptive music? I think with a few exceptions, everybody's pretty much on board with the whole interactive adaptive aspect of game music. Um, I, I did speak to a few freelance composers who are basically just assigned to you know linear music. And then sometimes the company they're working with is turning that into something interactive or adaptive. But... Um, for the most part, pretty much everybody is is on board with that. And people actually had interesting, different approaches to how they did that. You know, some people are really sort of breaking it down in terms of, okay, if I go from this room to this room, it's going to transition from here to here. And other people are writing sort of the broad strokes, writing the music first, and then looking at, well, how can I cut this up to make it fit this particular part of the game? So there's even yeah, quite different approaches in terms of how they, they deal with interactivity. There's no real sort of set rules as far as you know thinking about interactivity did you find that many of the composers spoke about middleware and their ability to use middleware in creative ways to make better adaptive a music? lot of people have talked about middleware yep um, and one of the things that surprised me is that it's finally kind of making its way over to japan because japan of course has had well you know, you know, quite proprietary tools that they haven't really used a lot of FMOD and WISE, but that's finally making its way over there, and they're starting to use these tools a bit more than they, they did in the past. In all of the interviews that you did, was anything particularly shocking? You know, I, I, <laughs> I would say the only shocking thing really was that the Japanese had 
almost the same experiences as Western composers. You know, I sort of envisioned that they had a lot more control, that they had a lot more power over their music and how it gets put into the game, that they got on board a lot earlier in the game design process. Uh, and that wasn't true at all. They had all of the same problems. And, you know, when I would explain to them, I it would say, you know, okay, well, so the American composers are saying, you know, that they're complaining sometimes they don't get on board until the very end of the game and the game's done and there's no, there's no memory left or there's there's no money left and and they would just laugh and be like it's exactly the same as here and, and so that was the one sort of thing that I, I actually was quite surprised at um, but having worked in this field for so long I think that I was mostly asking questions that I knew the answer to already so there wasn't a whole lot of surprises I would say actually something else that surprised me about Japan was that the female composers and sound designers. So I was like, wow, you know, they're so progressive. They've had these, you know, female composers working for so long in Japan. And and then uh, I was talking to, um, I think it maybe was Yoko Shimomura. I can't remember who it was actually that we were talking about this. And she said it was because that women were paid less in Japan. Oh, so, no. so the companies hired women because they didn't have to pay them as much money. Ouch. So so I had this vision. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had this vision of them being so progressive and like, oh, okay. Well, there's that shot down. So, Karen, I wanted to um, ask you about your collaboration with Leonard Paul on Beat. Um, can you talk about, you know, how that came about and... And how was that collaboration? Well, we're still working on that. Um, but <laughs> Leonard, I, actually, Leonard was one of the people who wrote a chapter for uh, from Pac-Man to Pop Music. So I've known him for about 10 years now. And when I was thinking about putting this documentary together and I thought, well, you know, who am I going to get to com compose this stuff? Um, Leonard keeps in mind because he'd actually written the music for a well-known Canadian documentary called The Corporation. And I really liked that film. It won a lot of awards. It was, it was a great film. And I liked his music for that. And he's also, of course, got the experience in games. So I thought, well, yeah, that would be um, a good choice. The fact that he's Canadian also makes it easier in that we're going to be applying for some Canadian funds. And so having a Canadian crew um, really helps out as well. So it was just an added bonus that, that he's uh, Canadian. But so far, um, I mean, everything's been fantastic. I, I throw him, you know, the, the teaser trailer and he, he came back with with a, a piece of music. I thought, yeah, this, this is really good. I really like this. And then he, he just wasn't satisfied with that. So he rewrote it, came back with this other piece. I'm like, yes, this this made me cry. So So then he was like, okay, now I got it. Um, and so he's, he's been really responsive that way. Um, and then with the Beep logo, what, what happened was um, I used a little piece of his music and I threw some sound effects on and I, I just sort of, it, it was kind of like, this is just an idea. I'm kind of thinking about going in this direction, you know, for this Beep logo. And he took that and recreated all of these sound effects individually using pure data. And then he's created an online... Um, uh, basically pure data patch that you can go and you can look at how he's built that using pure data and, you, and he takes you through he's, he's got a video online that shows you all of that but what we're going to be doing is taking that idea of pure data and having a kind of generative aspect to the score because one thing we're doing with beep um, with all of that footage we've got is creating an interactive documentary so we have the actual film but with all of this other stuff that sometimes gets pretty nerdy and deep is too much for a two-hour movie. Uh, we're putting that online and we'll have some interactive, like it's a, it's like a non-linear choose-your-own-adventure way to get through all of that content <laughs> rather than sitting down and watching a movie. You, you can actually interact with some things that we're building. So that sort of um, generative aspect of the music, will you'll be able to play with it online as well. So it's, it's pretty cool, I think. We're doing something that's fairly unique. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. That's great to hear. And I guess also really speaks to the non-linear aspects of of uh game audio too so that's well terrific. exactly we have we have all the same problems as, <laughs> as, as, as game audio is you know how do you write this non-linear piece of music that still sort of connects and and can help emotionally draw people in and yet it has this generative element you know that's kind of an interesting challenge for sure for sure um you know i wanted to ask you like what are some of your 
favorite stories or anecdotes that came out of the interviews um, for the Beep documentary? You know, I immediately thought of one that I can't repeat because they asked me to take it out. (laughs) (laughs) Japan was crazy. Um, You know, I'd been to Japan, fortunately, a few times because we didn't really have much time to get out and enjoy Japan. Um, But we experienced a number of quite serious earthquakes that shut down the train lines, uh, the subway lines. And so that was like this constant, (laughs) we always, I I felt like I was on a ship the whole time because the ground was sort of always shifting a little bit. It was really weird. Uh, And to deal with that, plus the 12 hour time difference at the same time was, you know, I was in this constant floaty state, um, which was, was fun. (laughs) It was a blast. Um, But Japan, as far as, as interviews, I mean, well, I, I don't think we could talk about the craziness of Japan without talking about Yuji Takanuchi, who goes by Yuji Technouchi. Um, now he's, a, he's a composer that started back in the MSX days, which was a, a console that was big in parts of Europe and Japan, certainly not in North America. And so he did the music for Metal Gear Solid 2, so going way back. Um, and he... Um, he insisted we come to his house. So we had rented this apartment in Tokyo because we needed a fairly large space to set up all of our equipment and everything. And it's just easier for people to come to us to do the interviews rather than, you know, it takes like a good hour and a half to get set up. So going to people's houses was was quite difficult, but he really wanted us to come to his house. So we thought, okay. Um, and he said, I'll meet you at this train station, you know, at, at I think it was seven o'clock at night. And so it was already a long day and we were really tired. And this train station, it turns out there was no sort of, there was no easy access to get there by road. So we had to lug all of our equipment to this train station. We're all sweaty, you know, it's hot and crazy. And then he comes and he meets us there and he's like, oh, it's just a 20 minute walk. And we're like, oh. we've got 400 pounds of equipment, <laughs> you know? Holy cow. You know, 20 minute walk. Um, so we started lugging all this stuff. And then eventually he's like, you know what, this is crazy. Um, he calls up some of his fans. So he has some fans that are around um, to come bring their vans. So they came and picked us up and they brought us to Yuji's house. And his house, now I should say, I'm, I don't know if I'm like on the spectrum somewhere, but I have a real <laughs> issue with, with patterns. Like I have a lot of trouble with clutter and with lots of stuff. And so we, we walk into Yuji's house and floor to ceiling, wall to wall, like every inch of this place is covered in stuff. Like there's <laughs> hang, bats hanging from the ceiling. There's fake birds everywhere. There's grass growing out of the walls. Like, like there's little dinky cars everywhere. Like, like the entire house, floor to ceiling, like everything is like this giant diorama. Uh, and, and we're just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, my sound guy immediately, you know, Roy, he, he goes back outside. He's just like, okay, it's okay. It's okay. And I'm <laughs> out. I'm like, like you, you don't even know where to look. It's just, there's stuff. And I could see why he wanted us to bring it to, to bring us to his house because, you know, it was pretty cool, but it was just total sensory overload and so then he he wants us to to film him sitting on this old trunk like that looks like this medieval um you know straight out of a video game kind of trunk while he's holding a giant sword (laughs) wearing wearing light up laser blinky glasses and this room is so small that I'm standing out in the hallway shouting in to my interpreter who's then asking him questions and then shouting back to me what's going on. My camera guy doesn't have enough room to actually look into the back of his lens. So he's holding like his camera side by side, like trying to guess, you know, like where the focus is, like holding these cameras. And, you know, it was just, it was absolutely insane. Like we just walked out of there later, just going like, what the hell what just happened? <laughs> uh, super nice guy. And these fans actually came and they brought all these old consoles that I'd never seen these old weird Japanese, like arcade things. And, and they set them all up and, you know, we were there for a few hours just filming this stuff and, and playing video games with them. I mean, mm. not, not being able to communicate hardly at all. Um, but it was, absolutely fantastic and that kind of 
that kind of summed up what Japan is like, you know, like this just this kind of crazy other world that you step into that's just like, wow. <laughs> and is he sort of a rock star over there? Well, he certainly has has groups of fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and he works as like a DJ and, and writes like, you know, electronic music on the side. Mm. So I think he has a big following from that as well. But these fans were like, they were really crazy. I mean, they were just, you know, th these guys were obsessed with game music. And, you know, there's like North American obsession. But when the Japanese get obsessed about yeah. something, like they live it. You know? yeah. They absolutely live it. So uh, it, it was it was a blast. We had a great time. Yeah, uh, we saw your snippet, the or the uh, Big in Japan uh, video that's up now on the web. And that is extremely well done, by the way. It's not just talking heads, you really have a lot of uh, external shots and scenes and stuff like that going on too. So you've put a lot of production value into this uh, movie, which I'm really excited to see. Um, but uh, in, in Japan, they have these house bands. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so back in the, in the 80s, mid 80s and so on, um, a lot of these companies sort of had their own bands that would be mostly usually the sound team, but also some other members of, of the game development team. And they would actually form bands that would play this this music live. And as we discovered, it, it was, <clears throat> sorry. You're, you're, you're catching my flu. How no. dare you? <laughs> so the, these house bands were, um, were one of the ways that a lot of the composers and sound team in general would gain some respect to the company because they had their own sort of fan base out there that would begin to um, you know, put, put the band name logo stickers on their their lockers at school and and so on and sort of so these bands would compete with each other they would have you know you know these concerts started by the early 90s where a lot of the different sound teams would would actually go and play concerts and sort of bring all of these people together to listen to game music uh, which happened so much earlier in Japan than anything in, that we had in North America as far as you know putting that game music out there to the to the people so i think it was really cool yeah, and the the uh, gentleman from Taito, the composer, who said that basically the composers were at the bottom end of the totem pole until they formed their house band, and once they had a big fan following, they started the you know they rose in status in the company. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that you know music and sound was basically their way of of gaining some status. That once they sort of figured out how to uh, how to get a following, how to get people interested in what music and games was, then suddenly people started to care about the music and games and the companies themselves started to care about the music and games. So, you know, it, I haven't had a lot of time to do any more background research into that aspect, but I, I think we could say that, that the formation of house bands probably, you know, influenced the direction of game music in general, influenced the fact that uh, companies started to pay attention to the music in their games. And which was the first company to have a house band? Ah, well, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Now, Koichi Namiki um, said that uh, Sega, he, he, were, mm -hmm. he was at Sega, they had a house band called Sega Sound Team. And it, it sounds like they were perhaps, if not the first, one of the first. Um, and so he said initially it was, it was part of um, a, a party that they were going to throw for Afterburner Panic, the mm -hmm. game, in 1986, I think that was. Um, and so... They, you know, they, they played the songs live and, and discovered that there was an audience for that. And it kind of exploded from there. Cool. Um, so moving on to the next continent, uh, Europe. <laughs> Any interesting anecdotes or uh, shocking stories or interesting characters over there? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing quite like Japan. <laughs> uh, let me think back. What happened in England? Uh, let's see. John Broomhall was there. Uh, Sam Hughes, who's the, both of them are on our team. The designing music. Uh, oh, great! Yeah, yeah. Richard Jakes, um, James Hannigan, mm -hmm. and no, I mean, I don't think there's anything that's <laughs> there's nothing that touches <laughs> our experience in Japan. Uh, so I guess yeah. I guess the the UK, the Europe, and and the American folks were all just very conservative. Well, I would definitely say the Brits are way more conservative than Americans. <laughs> um, we had to do a lot more work to try to get them to sort of come across as a little bit more enthusiastic. You know, generally speaking, not everybody, but generally speaking, the Americans were just like, you know, give me the cameras, put them on me. Here we go. <laughs> go America. 
Um, we're just loud the- and obnoxious, and then, and then the, the, the UK folks yeah. are like quiet, reserved, well mannered, well spoken, humble. humble. Yeah. And we're like, look at me, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit more work to draw to draw the Brits out a little bit, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's just cultural thing. So I get that. Yeah. And um, you interviewed Chanel. We did. We did. <laughs> Chanel came up to Vancouver to see us, which was awesome. Um, and I had never actually met Chanel before, which is weird because we've traveled in sort of similar circles for so long. And I kept hearing about her. And it was actually my sound guy, Rory, um, who couldn't make it to to the actual interview, unfortunately, because he lives in nearby in, in uh, Kelowna. But he's like, you have to interview Chanel. You have to, he'd, he'd watch some, some videos online and then I watched some videos. I'm like, yeah, we have to interview Chanel. She's a character as well. We need more characters. <laughs> We had we had several sort of character uh, sort of categories of people that we thought we should interview, um, and there were like, okay, these are the superstars, you know, got to interview them, and these are the people that have uh, important significance as far as the historical work that they did or something specific that they did in terms of uh, the development of game sound history, but maybe they're not very well known, and then we had the characters category. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we got we got some good, good characters. I'm not saying you're not a superstar as well, Chanel. Um, but but you've, Acro- you've yeah, covered across categories. Yes, exactly. You covered at least one category. I guess I definitely do have a personality. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> yeah, no, and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It it was wonderful, and you know, and obviously, any chance I can be uh, in Vancouver. Is, is is wonderful because I love Vancouver. Uh, my mom's side of the family is Vancouver from Vancouver, and so that 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 was a different perk as well to the interview, and also of course to 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 meet you and Leonard, because it it, it it's so strange, you know, having been in the uh, video game industry for you know about twenty years and um, Never, never having met, you know, you or, or Leonard, but, you know, that our, that our paths ever crossed. It was, it, it's quite odd. So it's nice to have rectified that. Yeah, indeed. I hope you come to the Game Developers Conference a little bit more and we can hang out some more. Absolutely. Yep. I'll be there. So well, this year we will be, yeah. I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say this yet. Shh, it's a secret. We will be releasing the premiere of Beep at the Game Developers Conference. So please wow. come. And- yeah. Now, is that a scoop? <laughs> can, can, we, can we talk about that? Can we? Okay. I don't know how much I, I can say at this point. Yeah. So like I haven't inked everything yet, so I don't want to say okay. too much about where uh, and when it's going to be, but we, we will definitely be screening it during a GDC week. And I think nice. probably there won't be a whole lot of tickets available for the general audience during that week because obviously the crew, my crew, and then people who were actually interviewed should have priority with the tickets. Um, and then from there, there, there will be some tickets that I haven't decided actually how to distribute those yet. But mm. uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And once it's out there, then it'll start screening in all kinds of places. So I'm sure people will be able to see it shortly after that. Oh, that's exciting. Cool. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, maybe we I can't can... wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you probably really can't <laughs> I wait. I want to see it finished. <laughs> um, maybe at, we should transition into uh, talking about the book. Yes. And the inspiration for, for that project. So, Karen, what was the inspiration for that project? This project actually started as a book before it was a film. And hmm. I planned on writing like a full history of game audio, like a lot more detailed than I had done in the past. I had an awful lot of material that I wrote for game sound that didn't actually end up in that book. So I thought, well, I can revisit that and add the voices of these people who actually um, were part of this history. And so my initial goal was just to interview these people and, and record those interviews and then use some of that content in the book. And then I thought, well, it's kind of a waste to go interview everybody and not recorded and so that's when it kind of exploded into this <laughs> well i'll just get a camera crew and, and you know and 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 do a movie why not 
Um, but from there, so the beat books that are on Kickstarter right now, that is all of the transcriptions of the interviews that we did. So there's a hundred interviews all together. Um, yeah, that are transcribed. And that's just like, that's a straight up transcription. Now at the same time, I'm still taking the bits and pieces I like from that and writing another book. Mm. Why, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> <laughs> So this other book will be that history that I'll put together, which is going to take me, I think, a few more years. It won't be anytime soon. So uh, the beat books right now are, are transcriptions of all of the interviews, um, which are kind of fun to go back and read. I, I really enjoy, you know, I, typing it out. I would be laughing sometimes, just laughing out loud as I'm listening to these things for the second time. Because in the moment, you know, interviewing people, we're both kind of stressed out, I think, to some extent. You know, the person I'm interviewing is, you know, it's you've got all these cameras and lights and microphones pointed at you, and it, it's it's a little bit stressful. And me as the interviewer, I'm thinking, you know, are they comfortable? You know, is the pacing good? Is, you know, how's the audio? And I'm trying to do all of these things at once. I'm not really living in the moment. But going back and reading them after I transcribed them all, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. And it, I realized that, I had a lot more fun than I thought I did at the time just because I was so stressed out. But yeah, um, I hope people enjoy reading them because it was really quite an experience to go and interview all of these people. Well, I'm just now upset that I didn't have a sword during my interview. So, <laughs> <laughs> if, if I ever do beep two, we'll bring props. <laughs> I should I should have I should have kept uh, my dog Cody in the interview and yeah. had, it, had it been a, like a ventriloquist act or something like that <laughs> and, and some neon glasses as well exactly i just i i wasn't too clever i was just sort of sitting on the couch yeah. <laughs> fantastic um karen you are clearly fascinated by game audio and audio in general and it's almost like you're the eo wilson of game audio you have you know everything that you have studied all of the you know vast uh knowledge that you've accumulated um really is impressive uh you know maybe another comparison might be since you're doing all these interviews now maybe jane goodall uh, <laughs> studying yeah. all of us uh, audio people and composers and our elements um <laughs> that's a good one yeah living amongst the apes <laughs> oh no wait a minute <laughs> dale <laughs> there is a kind of anthropological aspect except Mm -hmm. You know, I'm one of them. So, you know, absolutely. I, you know, it's it's kind of cheating. You know, I'm I've kind of I'm kind of too immersed in it in a way. Um, so it's uh, yeah, Gene Goodall. That, yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'll bring some bananas next time. <laughs> so back to the book. Um, what were some of the obstacles that you've uh, encountered? For example, you have to have translations for all of the uh, and you know, for the before you can do the transcriptions yeah for the japanese ones i had to send those off to uh to have somebody else transcribe them and translate them um the rest you know i just i have i i type really quickly so mm. <laughs> it was just a matter of i i did one a day and i it, wow. obviously it took, took me months but, but i would just get up first thing in the morning and type out one of those interviews and and yeah i mean it's it took usually about two hours to, to type out a one-hour interview, so it wasn't too bad. That's impressive. I, I've done that before, and that is a lot of painstaking work. But if you're a good typist and, and good at uh, – it also requires a good short-term memory, right? Because you, you, yeah. you keep pausing it in order to transcribe. Well, I got a good foot pedal that had like a reverse oh. and uh, a pause and a reverse, so I could just do that with my feet while I kept typing. So it, it made things move quite quickly. Oh wow! Very but, cool. Yeah, it was still a lot of work. So, um, can you talk to us about the Kickstarter campaign for the book? You know, like how many days left? What's the end date? Um, you know, what do backers receive? What's you know the full goal of the campaign? Sure. So the end date, I think, is set it as November 9th, which was just after Game Sound Con. So initially, I was hoping to get out to Game Sound Con and help promote it out there. Um, but I'm just not going to be able to make that. So it's just shortly after that, November 9th. And basically, we're trying to raise a little extra money. Our budget got completely blown by two things. 
Uh, one, the, the Canadian dollar dropped about 25% Ooh. in the past year. So we lost a quarter of our budget just to the, the tanking of our dollar, which is tied to oil. So, um, so that hurt. And then another thing that happened was we had rented a beautiful apartment to shoot in in San Francisco over the week of the Game Developers Conference and the week following on Airbnb. And the guy canceled on us at the last minute. Mm. And so we had to find hotel rooms and it just, it ended up costing a ridiculous amount of money because everything's booked up that week already. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy expensive. You know, yeah, we went from, I think it was going to be $4,000 for this great apartment that would house both of us to something like $15,000 Oh my gosh. That's huge. Yeah. So, so that really hurt as well. So we decided to come back to Kickstarter just to try and alleviate some of some of those costs um and so we decided to do this kickstarter specifically for the books because we weren't sure with the initial kickstarter what the books were going to look like and in fact book we thought at that time but there's something like a thousand pages so it just ended up being too much to put into one volume so it's a two volume set of books so by um Purchasing the books online during this Kickstarter campaign or purchasing the movie, you can you can do either or both at the same time. So we make a little bit of money back off that, um, and that helps to go back to offset some of these costs, as well as we, have, of course, have post-production costs as well to face now, too. Um, so, yeah, if you pledge some money, you can purchase the books. We're not going to have the books available after the Kickstarter. You know, this is kind of, this is it. Um I don't want to spend my time running an online store. So we just decided, you know, this is it. If you want the books, this is your chance to buy them. And so it's kind of an exclusive. Anybody who wants them should buy them now, at least to the extent that, I mean, we have to do a minimum print run. So if I only sold 50 copies of the book and I have to print 500, then I'm going to keep selling them because (laughs) I'm not sure I can give away 450 copies. Um, But Essentially, it's an exclusive to Kickstarter, it's, so it's only available for a few more weeks. Yeah, so if you want a hard copy of the book, definitely pledge some money, and um, otherwise, uh, it would only be available on Kindle or some afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll keep the digital copy available because I don't have to do anything as far as the work in distributing that. I've, I've backed the Kickstarter, so. You did, I know, we love you. <laughs> So folks, there, so folks out there, yeah. please back this Kickstarter. It's awesome, and it's an amazing amount of work that Karen and her crew have been doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, good. So, uh, Karen, we do have a few other questions here, sort of uh, in closing, a couple of uh, Proust-style questions, if you don't mind uh, bearing with us on a couple of those. Um, sure, so, yeah. Okay, for example... Um, if you could have a conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would that be, and what would you talk about? I'd like to talk to Mary Curie. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think she was. She's just you know a really interesting person. That a woman in science way before that was even remotely cool. Um, and the, the kind of work that she was doing. <laughs> and of course, I would like to tell her, you know, you know what that radiation stuff is, uh, you might want to stay away from that. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Those x-rays that look really cool, yeah, not a good gimmick, yeah, stay away. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, to talk to a really strong woman who's sort of one of the first big scientists um, w- would be really exciting. So nothing related to game audio. Hmm. Yeah, my degree's in physics, so I'm a big fan of Marie Curie. <laughs> Great. Work. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Karen, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, your love for for music and game audio and, and research. But what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You know what? I nearly went to med school. Hmm. I still am fascinated by, in particular, diseases. I think I would be an epidemiologist. Um, I I think I have a kind of sick, bizarre fascination with really deadly diseases. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the Ebola's, the really nasty stuff that that could could wipe out the whole planet. I just, 
I guess that's just the dark side of me with, you know, really, I'm, I guess part of it is just this, it relates to the zombie phenomenon as well. I think that there's something fascinating about the way the human body breaks down. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it's simultaneously a fear, but a fascination as well. So I think I would go to med school and, and yeah, study nasty diseases. Cool. And you love video games. Uh, what is your favorite video game? Of all time. Oh, of all time. That's such a hard question. You know, there's games from my childhood that I go back to and, and just love playing just because they remind me of my childhood, not because they're great games. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's games from my childhood that were, were really great games, like the Sierra online games. Mm -hmm. um, I really love those adventure games. Yeah. Um, the old LucasArts games. I really loved those. Of modern games, I tend to just play a lot of games on my DS rather than sitting in front of my console because I tend to only have time to play games when I'm, you know, on an airplane or something like this. Right. Um, so I, at least lately, I haven't had a whole lot of time to play console games. But my DS games, I mean, I would say that the Zelda games are top of my list, all of the Zelda games. Mm -hmm. Those are good ones. Let yeah. me... Uh... Good music, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you, when, when do you find yourself the most creative or even the most happy? When? When? When, 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 where, how, why? <laughs> <laughs> All the W's. Um, walking my dog. You know, on a beautiful day when the sun is shining through some woods where I'm totally isolated, there's nobody around. I keep a little notebook with me because those moments I'm just like, I, I just explode with ideas. There's something about getting away from the screen, yes. you know, off the computers, away from everything and just going out in, into some silence and just listening to you know my dog's breath as he's running and <laughs> having a lot of fun in the woods. And, and that's it. That does it for me. That's funny. That's uh, you and I share a very uh, similar philosophy on that. Whenever I'm, you know, just need some creative inspiration or um, the ideas just aren't flowing, I love to just take a walk. And yeah, particularly with my dog, there's nothing like it. So I, I totally uh, get you on that. And the final question we have for you, Karen, is what advice do you have for composers and anyone actually, uh, sound designers and so on? Uh, but in particular composers, perhaps, who are looking to get into game uh, audio? I think probably the most important thing to do is to plant seeds, I would say. You know, I think some of the things that are happening in, in terms of my own success in my career are branches of trees that have grown out of seeds that I planted 10 years ago. Mm. And I think if you if you plant some seeds and nurture them, that they you know, over time, they grow into some really exciting things. So, you know, volunteer and see what you can do for other people to help them out rather than just thinking about yourself and thinking about, you know, how it's what kind of immediate payoff there is. Um, and, and so I, one of the things I see that I think people do wrong at the Game Developers Conference is to sort of seek out the high flyers that they think are going to help them with their career. And I think it's more important to sort of make friends and, and, and you know, vol volunteer in the game audio world, get yourself known that way, um, and, and sort of build things slowly through that, that network rather than, you know, you know, because I've had people that sort of, oh, you don't actually work in game audio. Oh, you know, I'm going to stop talking to you. They do this eye glide. You know, <laughs> they look at you. They look at your badge and it's like, oh. You know, you're not worth talking to. Well, actually, I've gotten quite a lot of people some jobs because I know a lot of people. And sometimes people come to me and they say, hey, do you know somebody that can do this? And I'll say, oh, yeah, actually, I have met somebody that can do that. Um, so you never know where, you know, where the, the conversations are going to pay off, where the friendships are going to pay off. Yeah. The, you know, I, I think just, you know, be a good person. <laughs> it's as cheesy as that sounds. Just, you know, start planting those seeds and eventually it'll grow. It does have so much to do with character and character building. And I think that is a, a big part. And then, of course, networking, but networking in the right way, you know, once you've developed that character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think networking is probably more important than anything else in, in the game audio world that nobody wants to give a job to a jerk or, 
You know, they would certainly <laughs> rather hire one of their friends or somebody they've met rather than some stranger who has a good CV. Exactly. Exactly. It is about a lot about the soft skills, but I think you just really summed it up when you said just be a good person. Yeah, there's not enough of those in the world. But there are in the game audio world. I know. It's a wonderful community of, of terrific people. I mean, I think we are so lucky that everybody is so fantastic and, and nice and wants to share information and, and knowledge. And everybody is so helpful. It's really fantastic. There really yeah. is such a generosity of spirit. I'm so glad that I didn't get into film music. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. There is really a lot of love in the community and so much uh, cooperation and collaboration. And, you know, you'd think people would be competitive with one another, but it's really the opposite. Uh, we find uh, every day, you know, people that are willing to share their knowledge like you have today, Karen. Thank you so very much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. It's, it's always great to talk game audio. Yay. Yay. <laughs> thanks so much, Karen. Thanks so much. All right. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to the Designing Music Now podcast, a podcast dedicated to the craft of creating music for video games and interactive media. Please visit us at designingmusicnow.com for more info, news, and reviews on this subject. We would love to hear from you.